0: Welcome to the Listen and Think Podcast. Today I'm joined by Professor Jessica Flanagan. In this episode, we discuss the public policy surrounding sex work. She's the co-author of the book Debating Sex Work, where she argues for complete decriminalization of sex work. I'm not planning to make this a feminist philosophy podcast and I'll probably stay away from topics like this for a while now. So for those of you who aren't familiar with public policy relating to sex work, let me just take a minute and define the three respectable public policy positions. The first is decriminalization, where sex work is completely legal and not regulated differently from other forms of work. The second and probably the best known policy is legalization, which is the policy in the Netherlands where sex work is legal but is given extra scrutiny and finally there's the nordic model which doesn't punish sex workers but punishes the buyers of sex work and helps sex workers transition out of the industry all right with that in place let's get started All right, I'm here with Professor Jessica Flanagan. She's a professor of philosophy, law, economics, and politics at the University of Richmond. Today, we'll be, we'll be speaking about the ethics and public policy surrounding sex work. It's great to be speaking to you, Professor Flanagan.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: So before we jump into the topic of sex work, if I could just ask you about your political philosophy. I know you identify the classical liberal, but is there any daylight between you and the libertarians?
1: Oh, I'm, I don't know even where I uh, identify openly, but yeah, I'm probably a libertarian. Um, and I think of libertarians as just people who um, support economic freedom among the other lists of freedoms. So all liberals support civil liberties, um, like freedom of speech or freedom of association. Uh, if you put economic freedom on the list and you think that economic freedom or other types of liberties are equally as important as those civil liberties, then that's like a broadly libertarian perspective. So um, yeah, I think that I'm pretty sympathetic to libertarians. The only place where I would part ways with libertarians would probably be with like, I don't say with libertarians, with what people have as like their idea of what a libertarian would be, would be about things like property rights. So um i don't think that the current system of property rights is going to track people's natural rights and so some libertarians are really big on uh the government enforcing property rights i'm like less committed to that than most libertarians probably more of a left libertarian perspective um but yeah broadly libertarian classical liberal people who believe in economic freedom
0: yeah. you also seem to have an eclectic mix of interest from philosophy to economics so Could you tell us a little bit about your journey as an intellectual and how you got interested in the topic of sex work?
1: Well, originally, you know, in graduate school, I worked in medical ethics. um, And I wrote a book about the drug industry, pharmaceutical freedom, about how drugs are regulated and why people shouldn't have to have a prescription to get drugs that they want. And why public officials at places like the FDA don't have the authority to limit people's access to drugs. And so that was sort of my first um, major scholarly work was all about rights of self-medication. And that is related because a lot of the justifications for pharmaceutical regulation are justifications for what we might call like public health paternalism. And public health paternalism just means Public officials thinking that the government should interfere with people's choices about their bodies because if they were given the right to make those choices otherwise, they might make choices that would be harmful to themselves or harmful to their health in some way. Um, So I've always been interested in public health paternalism. That is why um, someone I know, Matt Sawinski, actually like recommended that I look into doing this book on sex work with Lori Watson um, because a lot of the arguments in favor of regulating sex work are also public health arguments or paternalistic arguments. So people want to regulate sex work on the grounds that it's bad for sex workers' health or bad for public health more generally. Um, So that's sort of how I got to the sex work stuff. And you're right, I do have other interests in applied philosophy that are related. So I've also defended things like freedom of contract. And some people think that contracts involving sex are unconscionable contracts. Um, And I've argued that uh, it's generally better to uphold a contract, even if we disapprove of it, and so even if people really disapprove of the contracts that people make with sex workers, it's generally better to uphold those contracts rather than creating black markets. Um, so that's how some of my earlier work led me to this place.
0: And one of the things that intrigued me about this topic was that it doesn't cut across any clear politically partisan lines. So, for example, if you're pro-Second Amendment in the United States, you're almost certainly on the right. And if you're pro-wealth tax, then you're almost certainly on the left. (laughs) But this doesn't come with a political tribe attached to it, which gives me cause for optimism about converging on this issue. Has that been your experience discussing this topic?
1: I think that what's going on is that people who are broadly on the religious right are critical of sex work. Um because of views about sexual morality or monogamy or um, like the sanctity of sexual relationships and the family. And then people who, some people who are broadly on the political left are skeptical about decriminalizing sex work because of concerns about economic exploitation or the exploitation of women or the objectification of women. And so there's this coalition on the left and the right that doesn't mean that the support for, Regulating sex work or prohibiting sex work has, you know, spans ideology. It's just that people from different ideologies can find a place to kind of hold on to it. Um, so I don't know if it should make me like optimistic about like the potential for bipartisan consensus and, or anything like that. Um, but rather, it's like kind of a coalition of convenience. I don't know if people agree with the reasons, they just might agree with the policy of regulating sex work. Um,
0: When it comes to opposition, someone's accused me of being too optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) In the book, your co-author Laurie Watson makes the point that even using the term sex work is misleading. Since sex isn't like any other service that's bought and sold in the marketplace. So, for example, teaching or cleaning the house have very different moral implications from having sex. So, she says that even using the term sex work is a euphemism at best and a pernicious lie at worst. You quite clearly disagree with that. Explain why.
1: So, it's difficult to have any term to describe a contested topic that's not in some ways going to beg normative questions for or against your position. Um, so, you know, we could use the term prostitution, but the term prostitution also carries with it this kind of negative normative valence, you might think like, oh, they're just words. You could just like specify how you're using it, right? So you could just say like, I'm using the term in a non-moralized way. But the way that people are gonna read these terms, they're always gonna bring their kind of normative baggage to bear on it. So I agree with Lori that sex work isn't a fully neutral term because I think that what the term does is that it confers the legitimacy of work to sex work. So a similar thing happens when we talk about unpaid care work or women who work inside the home. Traditionally, that kind of work has been overlooked and it hasn't been given the status of work or the support that workers in other fields would have. Um, so, you know, sometimes people who are advocating for stay-at-home moms will say things like, women who work inside the home should have, you know, a path to access um, more public support. Uh, that the same kind that other workers have, because it's valuable caregiving uh, support. So I think that when I chose to use the word sex work, that was in some ways a loaded choice because I'm trying to confer the broader social legitimacy that comes with the term work onto sex work, and that's just the thing that Lori is rejecting. Um, so it's like a fair point that like the term's not neutral. But on the other hand, the term prostitution is not neutral either. Um, There's like a lot of ways that we could describe the phenomenon, but all of them are going to be lending support to one normative position or another.
0: Yes, and I I just feel like this stigma attached to the term prostitution is too high a price to pay for debating this topic. But when it comes to public policy around sex work, there are three respectable positions as far as I can see. There's decriminalization, which you're a proponent of, there's legalization, which is the policy in the Netherlands. And then there's the Nordic model, which is the position that your co author takes. Mm-hmm. Could you explain each of these positions and why you support decriminalization in particular?
1: Well, I support decriminalization because I think that it's not wrong to buy or sell sex. And so I think criminalizing the sale or the purchase of sex. Um, would be criminalizing something that's not morally wrong, and I think there should be an extremely high bar anytime public officials are going to set to criminalizing conduct that's morally permissible, Um, and I think in the case of sex work, they don't have a very good reason because the public health considerations don't support creating black markets in sexual labor, and in many ways, it makes it more risky for sex workers for their industry to be stigmatized and criminalized in this way, so... Where generally i just think like decriminalization the case in favor of it is that it's not wrong for people to buy and sell sex um i think of premise that people have in the nordic model which is what Lori is a proponent of is that it is wrong for people to buy sex when people pay for sex they're exploiting women they're um, taking advantage of economic vulnerability or they're treating women like objects in some way and that The purchase of sex is something that is morally suspect. And so if you think that, that it's wrong for people to pay for sex, then that opens the door for a more prohibitive approach towards sex buyers. So the Nordic model says, not necessarily criminalizing the sale of sex, but criminalizing the purchase. Focus on the people who pay for sex. There's an intermediate position, which is you just have a regulated marketplace, (laughs) But, but like the more regulated marketplace, in some ways inherits many of the problems associated with criminalization without really Uh, improving upon the decriminalized approach, I think.
0: Doesn't every market have their specific set of regulations? So the financial industry and the mining industry have different sets of regulations. So why shouldn't sex work have its own set of regulations too?
1: Well, more generally, I'm often fairly skeptical about the legitimacy of uh, more interventionist regulations in industries where the regulations don't really aim to... um, limit negative externalities of the industry, but the regulations are more paternalistic. So, you know, in the states we have lots of workplace regulations that are for worker safety. Um, some people might find those burdensome. To the extent that those regulations are paternalistic, where the regulations are designed to protect workers from making occupational choices that would endanger that themselves, I'm a little bit skeptical of those types of regulations because I think people should have a right to take on a risky job. Um, for a wage premium, for example, if they want to. Now, there are other regulations like clean air regulations, which are designed to promote a public good for everybody. Those, I think it's easier to make a case for those types of regulations, but I don't think that that kind of justification for regulating an industry typically is going to support regulating the sex industry, except for maybe the kinds of regulations we see in uh, more decriminalized contexts with like public health monitoring, screening regulations, those types of uh, general public health regulations. Um, But regulations on, you know, like zoning regulations, like where people can buy and sell sex. I don't think that those are, um, I think those are gonna ultimately be counterproductive and a worry about more extreme regulations. Like the more burdensome regulating an industry becomes, the more you have the worry of creating like a second tier industry, like an underground market. And so if the goal was to bring sex work into the formal economy, give sex workers all the legal protections that other workers have, having some requirement, for example, that a sex worker has to be licensed and certified and monitored and can only work in certain areas and has to only work for certain types of agencies or in certain contexts, that could create a two-tiered system where we effectively have a prohibitive approach to sex work for people who can't access the regulated market. It's similar to like objections to like occupational licensing um, or like scope of practice regulations as well. So that's why I, like, I'm a little bit more skeptical of the more burdensome regulations.
0: But you would, would consider favor, some- yeah,
1: yeah, just treating sex work like massage therapy or- <laughs> okay. Yeah. So in the book, like my formal um, position is that the New Zealand approach is a pretty good approach where it's just regulated like other industries. So other people who, you know, work with the public, like massage therapists, or they're gonna be subject to some public health regulations potentially. Um, And to the extent that you think those regulations are legitimate, we should just, you know, treat sex work like other industries that are similar in those ways. I mean, in my like libertarian heart of hearts, do I think that like even those regulations are necessarily always gonna be justified? No, I think there is a worry about You know, excessive regulation in industries that are legal right now, like in the States, we like excessively regulate people who want to become florists or hair braiders, you know, I think that those are sometimes overly burdensome, but at a minimum decriminalization calls for not regulating sex work more than these other industries. And it might call for maybe uh, subjecting other types of industries to fewer regulations as well.
0: You alluded to one of the questions I had. So before I move to uh, what I think are good arguments against your position, let me start with a softball question. There's this idea that sex work is just too dangerous for women for it to be legal. Why are the safety concerns not a valid argument against your position?
1: I I think it's important to consider how safe a job is for workers who are deciding to take the job. For example, being a commercial fisherman or working in logging, those are very dangerous jobs. Joining the military, that's a dangerous job. I think it's good for people to kind of consider the risks and consider the benefits and make that judgment for themselves. But safety is a normative judgment. There's not like one right answer for whether or not a job is safe for a person. Uh, For some people, a job might be unacceptably risky, no matter how much they're paid. And for some people they might think, you know what, it's worth it to take on a few additional risks in my workplace because of the benefits. So when we let people join the military, um, say that you could join the military and they'll pay for college. Um, It's a very risky job, joining the military, but you let people do it, they take moral risks, they risk their health and safety, um, but they get an economic benefit out of it. And we think that that's their decision to make. So because safety is a normative judgment, it's not the kind of judgment that a public official can make for an entire population of people. So when people say sex work is just too dangerous for women, like that's there's just not a right answer about whether or not a job is too dangerous for women as a whole, nobody can know that. Um, For some women, yeah, they might judge it's not worth it, but for other women, they might be willing to take the risks. And making sex work illegal makes it much more dangerous for the people who do want to take the risk.
0: So a lot of people who agree with most, if not all, of what you said, probably people who are libertarians just like you, still have this concern about sex work. And it's a concern about the exploitation of the economically vulnerable. Most, if not all, the data show that a significant proportion, if not a majority of the women who enter the industry, do so out of economic necessity. Now, I think you and I would both oppose women being forced to have sex due to physical coercion. But then why are you comfortable with women being forced to have sex out of economic necessity?
1: Good, um, so the term exploitation sometimes is run together with coercion. And yeah, as you mentioned, like, of course, I'm against any kind of coercion or for sex. But sometimes people use the term exploitation to refer to situations where a person only makes a decision because of their own economic vulnerability. And if that's the case, that um, that's what we mean by exploitation, that people are making the decision primarily because they're economically vulnerable, low income, um, something like that, then it's really difficult to see why sex work would be more exploitative than other kinds of low wage work which people also take out of economic necessity. Um, So there's a lot of other jobs that people make who are low income. Um, and they only are doing those jobs out of economic necessity. And if anything, sex workers are choosing a job that gives them more kind of economic empowerment in some contexts than the other jobs that are available to them, like minimum wage jobs, because sex workers report that they enjoy flexible hours, control over scheduling, control over which days they work, which are things that other low-wage workers don't have. And even what you might think of as like the most economically vulnerable group of sex workers. So like street prostitutes or street sex workers. Um, there's a study by Stephen Lovett from like, I, don't know, I think it was like 2007, a little while, a, a while ago, um, that said that sex workers, street-based sex workers in Chicago were making like 25 to $30 an hour. And at the time the minimum wage in Illinois was like 650 an hour. And so, even if you're concerned that people are only making these decisions out of economic necessity, it might be more economically empowering for some women to choose sex work based on higher wages, flexible hours, being able to choose you know, the terms and conditions of the labor more than a minimum wage job.
0: Okay, this, this is an interesting point because I think this is where your intuition diverge from your opponents because to my eye, there really is a bright line difference between providing your labor and having sex. And I guess one example would make the point. So if a father forces his daughter to clean the house because he's lazy, we may think one way of him. But if he forces her to have sex with him, that's a whole different story. Is that a distinction that isn't striking to you?
1: What's the scenario of like, how is he like forcing his daughter to clean the house?
0: Let's say it's, In both cases, it's either physical coercion or he's just threatening to ground her for the rest of her life.
1: Yeah, so I think that in general, physically like forcing somebody to do any kind of labor with the threats of physical violence is wrong. Um, I do think that there are differences when it comes to sex, but partly that those differences stem from the fact that people perceive there to be those differences. You know, so it's like this sort of like, people think that sex is different and that alone makes sex a different category but um, if sex work was more like these destigmatized in these ways then it being a different category we might think of sex work as being more legitimate if we changed our attitudes of set about sex but because we have these attitudes about sex people don't think of sex work as legitimate so there's a sort of like bad chicken and egg problem with how the attitudes go. So I agree in that case, like I feel the force of that intuition, but it's hard for me to know what's going on and like whether or not what's really doing the work is that in the second case, we're really focused on the threat of physical violence. Um, And it could also just be a question of like different burdensomeness. Like if it's more burdensome to do one thing under coercion than another, that could make it worse. so yeah, I feel the force of this, but I do feel like even if you grant that there's like something that's distinctive about sex per se, it still doesn't follow that. That makes means that it should be immune from the marketplace or totally protected from any kind of market forces. So we might think like there are other activities that people do that are valuable in the context of certain relationships and that we wanna kind of protect the integrity of those activities. So like parenting, or caregiving activities, but that doesn't mean that um, it would be wrong to have a market in childcare, you know, for example. Um, so there is something very special about like a parent-child bond or something like that, that you wouldn't want it to be changed in certain ways, but that doesn't mean that you should prohibit a market in similar activities. And I think that that, yeah, so I think that that's a good case to bring out that like, yes, even I think there is something distinctive about um, sex versus other forms of labor, but I don't think it follows from that, that um, sexual exploitation is a sufficient grounds to prohibit sex work. Uh,
0: Yes, that wasn't the conclusion I was trying to reach. Uh, Oh, sorry. (laughs) What I was trying to get to is the solution in a country as affluent as New Zealand, where they do have decriminalization is may make sense because they have a strong social safety net, even though they do have some problems with homelessness. They do have a strong social safety net. But is the, is the same policy prescription right for Uganda or Kenya, where there's no social safety net, where the option for the woman is either to starve and die or to have sex? Isn't there a difference in of context that is relevant about when you're framing policies?
1: Okay. So in the book, I do argue that if we're really concerned about exploitation, the thing we should do to address exploitation is give people a basic income or a strong social safety net, and that'll make the selling of sex more voluntary. And your question is like, but if there is no social safety net, then wouldn't it be good to then prohibit people from paying for sex because then they'd be taking advantage of that lack of a safety net. So. Imagine that like people are drowning, like that's like the example of like, oh, they'd starve and die otherwise. Um, So you're in a boat and there's other boats around you. And some people have boats that have life preservers, but the people who have the life preservers um, are only gonna save the drowning people for money. And so the people with the life life preserving boats are going around and they're saying like, I'll rescue you for $400. and so the people who are drowning have no choice, but to part with like their whole life savings, um, just so that they can survive. And you'd think like, wow, that's like a, that's really like a crappy thing to do. Like they should have just saved the drowning people for free. Like they shouldn't have sold them the life preserver, but like, what are you doing to save them? Right. <laughs> so like in the absence of any social safety net, in the absence of any kind of Large scale aid to the global poor, either from their own governments or from like international philanthropic efforts or anything like that, it's large scale institutional change, uh, the person who is paying the person um, and it helping them not starve and die, as you put it, is still doing more for them than anybody else. So we might condemn people who are exploiting the global poor, be it through sex work or through Um, like sweatshops or, you know, factories. Um, But if nobody else is helping them, and it really genuinely is preventing them from dying of economic destitution, then yeah, I think that it's better to allow people to sell sex in those contexts than to then force them into a black market, which makes their dire situations even worse.
0: Okay, so then what would be your principled opposition to this policy position? If the government said that you know what? We're going to give everyone a basic income, so long as they have sex with their local representative. Would you be opposed to such a policy?
1: Well, yeah, because I don't think that the local representative would be entitled to like set those conditions on the funds. Like, where did the basic income come from? Is it taxpayer financed? Yeah. Well, so that's like the local representative is like, I'm gonna like manipulate the property system so that we can like um, take people's money and like redistribute it to like my benefit. I don't think that'd be like a legitimate use of the funds by the local representative, right? (laughs) It just seems like, like that's more of an issue on the tax end.
0: The top 1%, right? The top 1% in the US, I think pay more than 50% of the tax. So if the the policy was that you have to have sex with someone on the top 1%, as long as you do that, I'll give you a social safety net. Most people- (laughs) And that's the, struggle about sex work for the very poor. Of course, there are many people who chose it because of flexible work hours or something or their sense of community, but just zeroing in on this part of the community, do you not see a problem here?
1: I think that, um, yeah, I don't think that that's an apt analogy. So I think that in the basic income, plus like sex with your city council member case, the thing that's going on there is that it's a misappropriation of public funds. And there's certain constraints that public officials have to satisfy if they're using public funds, um, considerations of fairness, you know, considerations of justice that apply to um, our governments, that those would be violating. On the other hand, if it's just a person, an individual who says that they're gonna provide someone with an additional option that they didn't have, if a person who would like to get the money you know, feels like they're harmed by having that option, they could just turn it down. Like they don't have to, they don't have to take the job. And so because of that, I don't think that you would harm somebody by giving them the option in the private context.
0: In private Uh, market context. So I'm just wondering how far this principle of free market libertarianism extends for you. So take it out of the realm of sex work for a second. Say, for example, there's a market where the rich are buying the organs of the homeless and killing them in the process. Say they're buying their hearts for a heart transplant and giving money to their family. Yeah. So would you be in favor of legalizing such a market as well?
1: Yes. Um,
0: okay. Because... With the bullet.
1: <laughs> I can, yeah, so the argument for that claim goes I think that people have a right to die. So I think people have rights to end their own lives. And if somebody has a right to end their life, then they have a right to end their life for whatever reason, even if they were financially motivated. So people would have a right to end their life to, for example, like escape a lot of debt. Um, I don't think that that's like a good choice. I think in general, people who are thinking about ending their lives. Are probably making a mistake because they have a lot of well-being ahead of them. Not always. I mean, some people have like terminal illnesses and stuff, um, and it's like a well-being promoting choice. But even if it doesn't promote overall well-being over the course of their life, it's your body, and so people have a right to decide what to do with it. So in that case, um, the, the heart market, yeah, a person has the right to die. I think people have rights to sell their organs. I think that. Donating or selling an organ is a really great thing because it saves another person's life. Nobody would ever buy a heart or a kidney just to, you know, or maybe maybe like some super billionaires would, but most people would buy an organ to save another person's life. And so, um, yeah, I don't think that, I mean, I think that the heart market would be a symptom of like a broader problem that we didn't have like a sufficient safety net for people. Um, But I don't think that people should be prohibited from Ending their lives as a general matter, and I don't think that public officials should take a stand on what their reasons are.
0: So the people, I'm sure, if I asked that question to say a hundred people, a significant majority would not be in favor of legalizing a market for hearts. So how did they converge with you on decriminalization? Do they have to bite the bullet as well, or is there some other way around to get the decriminalization?
1: No, not at all. Yeah. So like. You asked me like what my personal opinion is on the heart market, and so I told you. Um, And that's informed by my understanding of kidney markets and who sells kidneys in kidney markets and the harm that prohibiting a kidney market has caused in most places like the United States where people die of totally treatable conditions because we don't have a kidney market. Um, And so, yeah, like I think we should have a kidney market. I also think people have a right to die. You put those two types of principles together, you get the heart market. But you don't have to sign onto the heart market to be a proponent of decriminalizing sex work because um, as it happens, even paternalistic justifications for prohibiting the sale of sex or even paternalistic justifications for the Nordic model don't have sufficient evidence behind them to show that they're in fact welfare promoting. So like, even if you're like, I don't even believe in bodily rights, Jess, like I don't care about bodily rights at all, fine. Like if you just look at things like the harms of black markets associated with prohibiting sex work um, or the fact that even if you try to do something like the nordic model where you prohibit people from purchasing sex that's also going to harm women who might be engaged in other illegal activity or women who have a um, undocumented immigration status or people who don't want to be interacting with law enforcement for other reasons and so there's a lot of reasons to favor decriminalizing sex work that have nothing to do with rights per se, but have more to do with welfare promoting or promoting social justice and equality um, or respecting women um, in this broader sense without having to sign on to the thing I just said about bodily rights. So I believe in bodily rights being super strong, but even if you don't, you should still support um, decriminalizing sex work.
0: You use the term, uh, the word paternalism and your co-author Laurie Watson pushes back on that, that this isn't paternalism. We're not preventing people from harming themselves. The Nordic model actually prevents people from harming others. So as I suggested at the beginning, there's, it makes no moral sense to punish sex workers. They deserve our support, not our condemnation. But I'm not sure if you can say the same about the buyers of sex work. They quite clearly are exploiting the unfortunate circumstances of these women. So don't you think they're culpable because they're seeking to gain benefit from a system that is built upon women being forced to sell sex out of economic necessity?
1: I think that people are generally too hard on sex buyers. I think a lot of people who pay for sex, I don't think they're doing anything wrong. And, um, they're paying for sex because they, uh, you know, they have lots of reasons, but for some at least it's because they lack access to other kinds of intimate partnerships. And that's like an important thing for their life. So people who, you know, would be considered less desirable in the dating market, or because like they lack the kind of life circumstances that enable them to invest in like a long-term relationship. I think the people who pay for sex aren't you know, necessarily preying on these vulnerable women, they have their own sorts of reasons that we should be more sympathetic towards for wanting to pay for sex. And it's not wrong. It's a voluntary exchange between two people. So um, a lot of people form intimate partnerships I partly motivated in. by economic reasons. Like this is just.
0: Just jump in there. The yeah. The whole question is whether it's voluntary, right? If, if the choice is between starving and having sex, it's the same as having a gun to your head and being forced to have sex. That's not a voluntary decision. And since the buyers of sex know that and are still exploiting these women, why shouldn't we think they're culpable?
1: It's a very different thing between a person who is under threat of starvation or threat of you know being kicked out of their apartment or something and then having a gun to your head. Those are, that's an inapt analogy, I think. Um, Because in the first case, to say that a person, who is under threat of starvation, isn't making a sufficiently voluntary choice, therefore they can't consent to sell sex, that would invalidate their ability to consent to any kinds of conditions of labor. So they also wouldn't be able to consent to take any other job that would get them out of that circumstance. If we really think that people just in virtue of poverty, lack agency to the extent that they're incapable of giving consent, that's not just gonna rule out sex work, that's gonna rule out work. And I agree that it's an injustice that we have a property system which makes it so that people can not meet their basic needs. I don't think that limiting their options further is helping them. If anything, it's subjecting them to the threat of violent interference because those policies are enforced by the government. And even the Nordic model is gonna in some cases expose women to the discretionary power of public officials to interfere with their lives. And the other case of like putting like a gun to a person said, that does violate a person's rights, like that violates the person's bodily rights um, in a direct way, that is coercive. And so I think that analogy is, is inapt um, between the two. Okay. And so then when you think of like the sex buyers, I don't think that they should be considered morally on a par with rapists because you know, when a person forces someone to have sex and uses sexual coercion, they're violating their bodily rights. But because sex workers are capable of consent, even if they're poor, because poor people are capable of giving consent, then sex buyers are not on a par with them, with rapists. That's a, I yeah. think that's an unfair analogy to sex buyers. I don't think
0: the Nordic model puts them on a par with rapists. The punishments for rape and for buying sex workers as different as they could possibly be. Right? right, but
1: you were saying just now that like, the, they're on a par because either way, the person's gonna face some like really bad penalty like death or something. And so I was just pushing back on that analogy that you posed, not to the Nordic model per se, but just like when you said like, oh, I don't think, you were just saying about the clients, like if a person's starving, that's the same as if they are they have a gun to their head. That's not no, the same.
0: Not the same. <laughs> but uh, In both cases, what I'm trying to say is one could think that they're culpable because you know that this person is being forced to have sex out of even, out of necessity. But
1: that's just what I'm disputing. Is I, I don't think that people who make decisions out of an e- economic necessity are being forced by the person who's giving that the, then the additional option. But if you, I mean, do you think that um, if somebody only works at a factory out of economic necessity, that that's slavery, that that's forced labor?
0: Uh, no, I don't. And uh, actually, I'm not presenting my views on this. Oh, yeah. But, you know, I'm just saying, so Like, what,
1: what? do you think I, that the proponent of that position should say that? Like, I mean, some people do say that about...
0: Because I agree with most, if not all, of what you said. <laughs> I no, to-
1: I see what you're doing. It's okay, but...
0: <laughs> I have to put the opposing perspective to yeah. so, so you. So, okay, let me put it like this way, that if you were, if you're a buyer of sex work, and you knew with the probability of say 30% that this person is, being for, is doing it out of necessity, what kind of moral person would it take to go ahead with it anyway? Right? What would be the psychological state of that bio if he knew this and he still went ahead with it?
1: All right, imagine two people, um, we'll call them John and Jim. And John and Jim both know a person who is like extremely poor and like can't, doesn't have enough money to like meet their basic needs. And so let's call her Mary. Um, So Jim knows this about Mary and knows that she's gonna be like evicted, homeless, and she's not gonna meet her basic needs. And he just does nothing. He's just like totally indifferent to her plight. And he just goes about his day, like goes back to his cozy condo, watches Netflix, that's it. Um, And John like sees Mary and he says, Mary, like, uh, look, like you need money. As it happens, John thinks to himself, he like lacks any kind of access to like a meaningful, intimate partnership, but he would still like to be able to have sex with somebody. And so he proposes a trade with Mary. He says, "I'll give you four hundred dollars for an hour. That'll help you meet some of your basic needs. Um, in exchange, you'll provide sexual services. What do you think?" Mary can totally say no, um, or she could say yes whose psychology do you think is more criticizable, John or Jim's? Jim didn't do anything for Mary, and John could just retain the option to do nothing for her, but he's just giving her an additional option, which she might take up or she might turn down um, either way. So when you say like what kind of a psychology would like uh, pay for sex for a person who knows that they're only doing it so they can meet their basic needs. I think like, that psychology is in some ways like at least not worse than the kind of psychology than a person who knows that somebody is unable to meet their basic needs and just does nothing
0: okay so here let me put in my view because i think both of them are very uh, clearly critici- criticizable so i'm a proponent of uh, effective altruism so i don't think that it's okay to not donate. I don't think so. If you if you're familiar with the work of Peter Singer, he makes, oh yeah,
1: <laughs>
0: he makes this argument as well. So it's it's not morally acceptable for Jim or John, right? It's not morally acceptable to allow people to starve because you want a new beach house or you want a fancy dinner. But the solution to that isn't to exploit those people, it's to donate to those people.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm a proponent of effective altruism too. Like our family does the giving what we can. And I think that effective altruism is an excellent movement. But given that we don't generally criticize literally everybody else, society, who's doing absolutely nothing about the needs of the global poor or the poor within our own communities. We don't subject them to that kind of criticism. I think that it's unfair to criticize sex buyers who are probably benefiting sex workers who act out of economic necessity more than most of the people who are just coldly indifferent to them. Wouldn't you agree? So it's like, yeah, like it would be great if Jim and John were to help Mary with no strings attached. Like I think that would be a good thing to do. It'd be praiseworthy for them to do that. But Jim is supposed to be just like your ordinary citizen who doesn't really do anything. And so we focus so much on the psychology of people like John, but against the kind of average contrast class, I don't think that John should look so criticizable.
0: This reminds me of a thought experiment that uh, one of the philosophers, I enjoy the work of uh, Sam Harris makes. So if, if you found out that your grandfather was involved in the firebombing of Dresden in, say, the, in World War II, that would be one thing. If you realized that he killed two, a woman and her daughter with a shovel personally up close, that's a whole different thing. Even though you know that if he was involved in the firebombing of Dresden, he probably killed a lot more people and inflicted a lot more suffering. So even though, from a consequentialist standpoint, the former is worse, it takes a different kind of person to exploit, as to as opposed to just being completely apathetic. Do you not see that distinction?
1: I see why you would think that about sex buyers—that there, like that, there's like kind of something psychologically criticizable about them. But I think that that intuition is unreliable, partly because I think that. There's so much stigma around paying for and selling sex. So, um, think about similar services that are also like fairly low-wage services. Like, what kind of person would pay somebody to do massage therapy, or it would pay somebody to um, like clean people's feet and give them pedicures for you know six dollars an hour, ten dollars an hour? Um, you know, like I think that. It's only because My mother we have would this.
0: Be happy to hear this. <laughs> I
1: mean, we, we pay people to, we pay, we, like, we in the, um, the general sense, people in society, people pay low income workers to provide services to them regularly. And I don't know that it's like more criticizable to pay for sexual services than housekeeping or pedicures or massage therapy or any other kinds of these beneficial services. I think one thing that's going on is that people have in their head a picture of sex buyers as being kind of like men who would themselves be low status. Um, and so they sort of think in their heads that like a lot of people who pay for sex pay for sex because they're low, lower status and they can't find romantic partners. And maybe that might contribute to why we think this way about sex buyers is because there's prejudice against low-status men Um, where we think, oh, no one else would um, be their romantic partner. That's why they have to see a sex worker. And that means that automatically those men are also in some ways like a stigmatized category. Um, I don't know that that's an accurate representation of people who are sex buyers. I think some men who pay for sex are you know, just like people who work a lot of hours or people who prefer sex workers for certain reasons, they have certain preferences that are difficult to satisfy in the dating marketplace. But I do think we should be wary about um, our intuitions being clouded by both the taboo surrounding sex and then also stigma that surrounds not just sex workers, but sex buyers.
0: So I don't know that our
1: intuitions are as reliable in those cases.
0: I guess we've explored this part of the discussion enough. I think people will fall on one side or the other about the bright line between labor and sex. Um, yeah. So maybe I hope most people see it the way we see it, but I'm not sure if people do. But there's a final concern, which which is a concern that even the most libertarian person has to contend with. And it's a concern that would remain even if we had a perfect social safety net. So whether it's universal basic income or unemployment insurance, whatever kind of social safety net you like. The problem is of externalities, that the the sex work industry has massive externalities. It doesn't just affect the people who are participating in the industry. It affects society at large. Do we really want to live in a society where men think the bodies of women are for sale? Isn't it completely rational for a parent not to want his children to grow up in an environment where men look at women as sex objects?
1: Yeah, so on the externalities arguments, there's sort of like two clusters of them. And the one you brought up, I would call like externalities related to our social norms. Um, So I think that social norms, norms surrounding sex and gender are sort of always in flux Um, 30 years ago. It was really counter normative for people to be gay. And people were very worried about, you know, if the United States recognized gay marriage, what would that mean for the family? (laughs) They had all these like uh, crazy hypotheticals in their heads about how like recognizing the legitimacy of gay relationships would be like the end of our norms. And like, as we saw, like, none of those nightmare scenarios that were put forward by the Christian right about gay marriage really came to heavy, like it was not undermining to the family, it didn't undermine traditional marriage. Um, but I think it was really great for families and traditional marriages because we could have more families and more people getting married. Um, and so I think that we should be um, skeptical about like sexual moralism in our politics in general, because we know that we've been so wrong about this in the past from, um, yeah, like upholding policies that would, penalize or shame people or delegitimize their relationships based on misplaced sexual moralism. And I, I do wonder if sometimes the worries about sex work is similar, is that there's a kind of holdover purity culture or a holdover forms of sexual moralism that are sort of making people worry about externalities that aren't necessarily going to exist. That's more from the right. Um, then there are also concerns about externalities which you mentioned about like men viewing women in a certain way, men viewing women as sex objects um, or as like means to their own sexual gratification. And there I think like, you know, that's not good. Like I don't approve of men viewing women solely as means to their own sexual gratification. I don't think it's good for anybody to view any worker like as solely as like pure means. I think we should always interact with each other in a more respectful way as people. Um, But I don't know that sex work is the primary culprit here um so like yes like there is that concern about pornography or having access to sex workers but also just like advertising and you know the whole general sweep of human history where women have been uh, economically and sexually exploited by men like (laughs) I think like to put all of that on sex work and to think like sex work is going to be like the thing that's going to lead to men viewing women as sexual objects? Like, I don't think so. If anything, I think having a bunch of male public officials or police officers or you know people within a society that's where men still have a lot of economic and political power to regulate women's bodies and re- regulate women's choices, um, that that's more problematic from that kind of perspective of worrying about women being objectified, um, right? I don't know, that's my, <laughs> that's my first take on the norms question.
0: I just want to tackle this point about sex, work, and labor one more time. Okay. So, why do you think that rape is such a heinous crime? The only crime at par with it in the legal system is murder, right? But why do you think it's so bad? It's considered so bad. Do you think it's just because of our cultural norms or do you think... It yeah,
1: has. so I think that, um, I do think that, um, two things, partly I do think that it's part of our cultural norms, that in some ways our attitudes towards sexual violence um, are, there's blurry edges around them, right, like about how we think about sexual violence and um, the, the ethics of sexual violence, and in some ways, yeah, like there are factors that depend on a certain culture, so it's going to be in some ways dependent how people draw the boundaries around issues of the wrongfulness of sexual violence or what is sexual violence is gonna be culturally dependent. Um, that said, I do think that sexual autonomy is a distinctive form of bodily autonomy that people really value. And so there is something special about sexual autonomy, whether intrinsically or because it just happens to be that like throughout most cultures throughout history, people really value sexual autonomy. I don't know, like I don't know what the underlying, like I guess like meta ethical status of it is, whether it's in some ways attitude dependent or if it's like a fruit fact about rights. Um, so I do think that sexual autonomy is distinctively important. Uh, you mentioned how it's like punished. Okay. That's a question about criminal justice. And like, I don't really, I mean, I think that questions of punishment are like, are generally like extremely difficult to settle in political philosophy. (laughs) and So um, I think that like, I don't have a theory about like how sexual violence should be punished relative to other forms of violence per se. Um, But I do think that like, whether for culturally contingent reasons or for kind of fundamental moral reasons, sexual autonomy is a value that people have special reasons to wanna protect. Um, And I agree with that. So I don't wanna say that like, sex isn't special in any sense, because I do think that that is a sense in which just observing how people respond to sexual violence. Yeah, it's it's a distinctive type of harm. Um, But I do think that the value of sexual autonomy still weighs in favor of decriminalization because I think it also threatens women's sexual autonomy to tell them that they can't have sex for certain reasons, that they can't have sex for money, for example. And I also think that women who are selling sex are more vulnerable to sexual violence if they're selling sex in a black market. So if you're very concerned about sexual assault, I think that a concern about sexual assault should encourage people to also support decriminalization.
0: Yeah, I guess you've made as strong a case as one could possibly make. So thank you so much for having this conversation. And I hope thank you find it as useful as I have. It was a pleasure to be you.
1: Yeah, it was good talking to you. Uh, Have a good day.